William McDonough is an architect and globally recognized leader in sustainable development. He served as the inaugural chair of the World Economic Forum's Meta Council on the Circular Economy. And he's the pioneer of cradle cradle thinking, imagining a world designed where all products, furniture, buildings, textiles, are recycled infinitely back into a system which makes greater and greater use of those products each rotation through the cycle. I caught up with Bill at the World Economic Forum's Sustainable Impact Summit in New York, where we dove into the deep and dark waters of ocean plastics. Clearly, the persistence of thousands of different non-natural polymers floating around in the ocean at mega, micro, and now at nanoscale size is impacting life and living systems in extraordinary and unnatural ways, not at all life-giving. But the good news is that we can wage peace through commerce to course-correct our persistent plastic pollution of the world's oceans. Let's listen to what Bill McDonough has to say about this and his vision for the future of a zero-waste, truly circular, upscaled economy. We're here at the World Economic Forum Sustainable Summit, and I am sitting here with Bill McDonough, who is the CEO of McDonough Innovation, as well as the co-author of Cradle to Cradle, which is a seminal book on sustainability. So maybe you could even lead us out with sort of some highlights from your thinking way back when, Cradle to Cradle, since the whole narrative on circularity and circular economies and ecology has really taken off. So Cradle to Cradle is in comparison to cradle to grave. So if we look at the linear economy that we've created as a species, we find that we take, make, and waste. And then as far as operating it, it seems that the first rule of the first industrial revolution was that if brute force doesn't work, you're not using enough of it. So we ended up powering it with fossil fuels, starting with coal, and have developed something that has caused all this concern over fugitive carbon in the atmosphere and pollution and things like that. So with Cradle to Cradle, we design things to come and return to either biological or technical systems. Biological nutrient would be something that goes back to nature. A technical nutrient would be something that goes back to industry. So plastics, metals, glass, things like that can go back to industry. Food, cotton, materials like that can go back to the natural world. So we design things to be in those two metabolisms and be safe and healthy. And then we have circular economy that comes second because we need safe and healthy things that we recycle rather than toxic things that we recycle. So the circular economy, which in many ways is based on this work, is really an economy of things that we're returning to use and that we want to be safe and healthy. Then we have renewable power, clean water for everyone, and, and social dignity. So that's the frame conditions of design using cradle-to-cradle thinking. So in the plastics arena, how does that work? When a consumer buys a product, hopefully it's designed, you know, like you said, to go back into a, a natural system so it can be degraded. But if it can't, how do we create a closed system, like you said, a, a healthy metabolism for packaged products that are plastics, recycle them back into a, right. a closed system? The key thing is that they're designed to be recycled. That's the first step. So there are a lot of things like plastic pouches today. There might be seven different types of plastic laminated together. Some are for shine, some are for stiffness, some are for ink, some have different barrier properties, oxygen, moisture, things like that, oils. So you get these complex monstrous hybrids of things. So it's not really recyclable because it's an undefined mixture of things. 
And when you put that all together into our trash, generally, we end up with so many kinds of plastic in the same system that it's very hard to sort them and separate them and then process them. So I think yeah, as we move into the future soon, we will see that PET, like a water bottle, can be recycled mechanically and it will and typically has enough value that that occurs. But the rest of the plastics you know, are a bit of a mess. And so I think what we'll see is we'll remove PVC from the mix because it can cause all kinds of problems with recycling. And then with the rest of them, what we call the polyolefins, they we can take back to oil actually using various chemical recycling. And then we can purify it, which in our language would be upcycle it. So bring it back, but just don't recycle it with all of its toxins and noise. Have it, have it purified, remove the toxins, and then go back to making new things that are designed for recycling and designed for collection and designed for reuse. Upcycling is the idea that when things come back in a recovery system, if they're not perfect, you can improve them, take out toxic material, reprocess it. So you can put it back into use cycles as a safe, healthy material. Right. That's upcycling. So upcycling means that you're adding value back to a system opposed to just sort of sustainably Right, most of the things we see today are downcycling actually. Mm -hmm. We'll see materials like if you look at clear plastic food grade and it gets mixed with all sorts of other stuff, it actually gets downcycled in quality it gets and it can become a flower pot or something on its way to a landfill or an incinerator, but it's losing its quality as you go, downcycling. Recycling would be using it again as water bottle and then upcycling would be taking out some of the questionable toxic materials that might be residues from some catalytic reaction or something. So you're just increasing the quality of it. So that's really upcycling to us means improve the quality of something, not just change the use to what someone might consider a higher order. A lot of people think upcycling might be a plastic bottle becomes a fleece jacket. But for us, the fleece jacket has dyes, metal zippers, various finishes, all kinds of materials added to it mm -hmm. that make it basically difficult to recycle and compromised by the undefined materials that have been added to it. Well, I'm really glad you use that as an example because I'm really concerned now that my polyester clothes, when I wash them and actually put, unbeknownst to me before, these microplastics in the water, which That's eventually right. will end up in the ocean. And National Geographic just published yet another article on plastics and microplastics where the young fish in their estuaries, when they first hatch, the first breath of water air has microplastics in it and they can't survive because they're not getting any nutrition from day one. Mm. And so really a, a problem that hasn't yet been solved and how, how can we solve that one? That's a, that's a big one because a lot of people do think, oh, okay, if you turn a recycled bottle into a you know, new fleece jacket, then I'm, I'm doing my part. But actually, like you said, you're just delaying in a way this ecological hazard. I don't, think, I don't think anybody intended to cause these consequences. I think they Neither are I. absolutely unintended consequences. Absolutely, I agree. But now that we see them, we have to face them immediately. Absolutely. The next round of this is actually nanoplastics, which are the ones that are so small that they're now showing effects in the brain in some of the fish species, especially lanternfish. And the fish are getting disoriented. They come up from the deep. They eat plastics on the surface, which has specific gravity, lighter than water. They have a difficulty getting back down because they're floating, and they get disoriented looking for food. So it's a really very serious moment because it doesn't take long to extrapolate that into the human condition. And we start to realize that this is something we're doing to ourselves. 
if we look at all these tales of woe that we've caused around us, it's because of various kinds of fugitive forms of things that we've let loose without any kind of regard for the real potential disruption. And obviously the big one is carbon in the atmosphere as a fugitive material. I'm working on a new language of carbon. So we have fugitive carbon that we've let escape and some of it is damaging because it's toxic at certain levels. And then there's durable carbon, which is say water bottles that are being reprocessed into water bottles across generations. That would be a durable form of polymer and carbon unless it gets to the ocean, in which case it's fugitive durable carbon, which is really not a good idea. And then the third is living carbon, which is the carbon that is accruing from the atmosphere to soil. So we really want more of that. We want more durable carbon across generations, being carbon neutral in effect. And then we want to cease fugitive carbon immediately because it's a toxin. When you have toxins, you have to just stop. You don't have to say, oh, let's reduce it a little bit. You don't go to the children in Flint, Michigan, suffering from lead poisoning and say, we're going to reduce the lead in the water slightly. Yeah. You should feel good about it. Or we're going to reduce the lead in some other city equal to your lead and you'll be lead neutral. I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting But that's what parallel. we do with carbon. That's so I call it the fallacy of the offset, you know. All sustainability, like politics, is local. We can only measure these things in terms of what's actually happening to somebody wherever they are. So if we want to talk about food production, we have to talk about what about the farmer wherever they're farming, and we have to talk about what about the person who literally can consume food in a city somewhere. It's not one thing. You're not just looking at the person in the city. You're not just looking at the farmer and making equations. You have to look at the whole chain and understand what effects it had all along the way. These things get kind of complicated. They do. But the fundamental ones that are got me awake at night are plastics becoming nanoplastics and dispersing the way they have. 20 years ago, Captain Charles Moore announced that he found six times as much plastic as plankton in the Pacific Gyre, the great North Pacific garbage patch. That was 20 years ago. It's a revelation, but it's also watching what his research shows, six times as much plastic as plankton in the first year, 80 times as much plastic as plankton in the second year. Now we're finding that in the oceans that if by 2050 we expect that the weight of plastic in the oceans will be equal to that of fish. So this, we did this. Now, did we do this by intention? See, I like to think that design is a signal of intention. I'm, an in, I'm a designer. So did we intend to do this? And if we didn't, then it's not part of our plan? Well, then it's part of our de facto plan. So the thing is going to happen if we don't have another plan. So our job right now is to come up with another plan as fast as we can right. that can start to address these issues and hopefully um, with speed and dignity. So how? I mean, do you have some ideas? Do oh, have lots. Some? Lots of, of ideas, okay. Of course, that's our, that's that's our your, work. That's your job. That's yeah, your work. we design buildings like trees that make you know, energy. Well, stay, stay in the ocean for a minute, yeah. and let's go back to the, the No, but it all comes down to that same thing. We have to take care of it on the land first. Okay. If we design things cradle to cradle, then yes. they're safe, healthy materials, including the plastics and the packaging and so on. Then we can design a take-back system for it. We have to understand what it means to collect it before it ever gets to the ocean. And the second thing is to do that, we need a circular economy of things going back. But we don't want a circular economy of bads we talk about having goods and services, mm -hmm. and in Cradle Cradle we also have a concept of goods as a service. But what if they weren't goods? What if they were bads? So a circular economy of bads would be worse. Yeah. So circular doesn't mean good, it just means again. So the real question becomes, how do we have clean, healthy things that we put in circular economies, that we're in, in sharing economies, because we're kind of mm -hmm. skewed across and we're mm -hmm. not sharing too much anymore. There's sharing of things like Airbnb, 
and Uber, but there's also sharing. If you look at it, you know, three people in the United States with wealth equal to half of the country. Well, to bring it to the products and yeah. to the session we were in today, the, yeah. an example came up that, you know, children can share their toys or, yeah. Yeah. you know, exactly. women who are into fashion can have fashion parties and share clothes exactly. and things like exactly. this. It yeah. actually helps build community sure. and yeah. somehow we don't also all have to own every right. toy. That's an opportunity. Right, exactly. And then the third is we want renewable power and clean power. We want clean water for everyone. It's human right, and we want social dignity and people treated with fairness. Right. So land. if you do that on land, yes. then you're not throwing stuff in the ocean. That brings us to the ocean. So what can we do about it? I think what we can do is try and collect as much as we can, although it's very difficult because it's so dispersed, it's not concentrated, it's undefined material. It's and it's in 3D. It's, it's not just on the, the surface. Yeah. It's throughout the entire yeah. profile of yeah. the ocean. And it's degrading, and it's getting you know, biological material attached to it and so on. But I think we can collect as much as we can, and usually locally, and then we can take a lot of these other plastics and turn them back into oil through chemical recycling, in effect. And we can use the ocean plastics as a dilutant because I think we can handle a little bit of that into the rest of this as we clean it up and then be able to start with pure material again, start with pure hydrocarbon. And then we can also design these hydrocarbons to become carbohydrates. So could you oh. think about it, it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. I know, this, in is, different this forms, is life, right? right. right. Exactly. Food, so we life. can design technical materials to go back to being technical plastics. Mm -hmm. And we can design materials to go back to the soil, depending on the use, depending on disposition, depending on where it is and how is meant to return. Is that what the Plastic Ocean Alliance is, is all about? That $1 billion that Dow and other companies put into a coordinated effort to help clean up plastics in the ocean, is that what they're really looking to do is to convert these microplastics, plastics in the ocean that they can collect into this new petrochemical? Those are the kinds of things they'll be yeah. looking at. Yeah, okay. I think it's going to be quite difficult with the small bits of plastic, but, but I think cutting it off from the source is going to be the key. Oh, really? Yeah. Because you think the amount of plastic we have in the ocean now, we can be very hard away. to get back. Very hard. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. You know, and where we can, where we can see it, certain, certainly mm -hmm. collect it if we can. So, what would you share with our audience now about how they can make an impact? I know our whole session today was on reuse. So mm -hmm. we, we hear the three R's: reduce, reuse, recycle. But mm -hmm. we we sort of jump over reuse and we go straight mm -hmm. to either. Don't well, and we forget you can't recycle it unless you have a recovery system. That's true too. So, in different parts of the world, like in Indonesia, you know, the, the sachets, you know, millions and billions even of little plastic things that sell bits of shampoo, bits of soap to people of modest means end up in rivers because there is no infrastructure for that. Right. That's what happens there. If you look at sorting, you'll see Northern European countries able to sort into different bins of plastic because they can afford the time and effort to get that done. You'll see people in Japan sorting at a very fine grain. It's right. quite astonishing, really. I heard the other day that there's one city in Japan that sorts 40 separate fractions. Yeah, 40. I'm not really sure in different parts well, of the world when you recycle or put it in a bin that it actually goes to yeah. a recycling center. Especially in the United States, we now have pretty much single stream waste. We just put it all together and then expect them to take it apart at what we call MRF, which is a material recovery facility. So sometimes they sort it, sometimes they can't. Things like pouches, you know, flexible packaging, they can't recycle it anyway. So that will end up in a landfill typically or in a, even incinerator, but probably most likely in a landfill.
So we have to be very conscious as citizens that when we recycle, we, it may not actually go to a recycling center. And Especially if it's single stream, yeah. Single stream. And I think what people are looking at is coming back to certain kinds of curbside recycling for things like paper and then certain kinds of plastic. And I think we can keep focusing on that more and more to make it easier for people and start designing the packaging so it can be recycled. And we're seeing new designs of various things that will help with that. But it'll take a while. But I think it's a big design problem, and it's a big infrastructure problem, and it's a big behavioral problem. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that when we were walking around hunter-gatherers, you know, it was actually please litter was the instruction. You think about it. We took berries and fruit off trees and collected nuts and grubs and various things to eat, you know, as we walked along as hunters and gatherers. And then all the detritus of all that was on the soil and turned back to dirt, because that's the world we were in. Then as we started banging metal and started becoming sedentary, and all of a sudden we have agriculture and we have production, then we start making things. But it, typically early on they were metals and they were weaving and things like that, knotting, rugs and mm -hmm. textiles, and, but they were made from natural materials. They were made from linen, they were made from cotton, they were made from things. So that became something that was basically part of the environment itself and could return to it. Absolutely. Now we're actually in a world of artifice, and so it doesn't know where to go in the natural world. And it's, it's hard to throw something away when away itself has gone away. When away itself has gone away, what do you We mean don't have that? an away anymore. The ocean is away. You can't throw things away. Where's away? Some other planet? See, the planet, as we see it, is one thing. We realize that. So you can't throw something away because there is no way. It's all here. Well, that's also interesting because it's the hunter-gather mentality that there's always a new frontier to explore. Right. There's always right. a new place to migrate to. And you haven't overrun to. it and you haven't destroyed it. So when you leave it, it heals and then you can come back to it. So back to then reuse this piece of engaging consumers, or let's just call them citizens. If you want to change our language from a consumptive-based narrative consumers to call them customers customers customers, customers yeah. citizens came out so customers yeah. yeah customers of products keep using citizens because we were using in our session. consumer you consume a product right customer you use the product then how do we engage them in a new culture of reusing in these durable plastics well first I think if people see them as goods rather than just ephemeral stuff that comes and goes mm -hmm. that's the first thing that these are nice things to have shampoo personal care products whatever and then on the packaging, if we make it very convenient and very attractive, people could find that something very useful. So we don't design for end of life. We design for end of use. We design for end of use. So everybody who says they're designing for end of life frightens me to death, because how do you tell that to children? Hey kids, we're designing for the end of life. What a horrifying thing to say. Most of these products are not alive. So certain things, you know, that are organic, and you're actually consuming them, toothpaste or cotton shirt you throw in the garden, you know, those can be consumed. But most of what we use, we're customers. We want the service of the TV. We want the service of the telephone. So we're actually using it. So we say design for end of use. And the nice part about that is it begs the next question, which is, what's the next use? So if you design for next use, Welcome to the circular economy. Then every, let's say, service can be reused, every product can be reframed or even repurposed in a different industry. Right. Right? Exactly. Can you give us an example of that, actually? Well, uh, polyesters, you know, become carpet fiber, and we can now take carpet fiber back to polyester bottles. So the polyester can be 
cycled through various uses. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think the example of a, a great carpet, commercial carpet in this context, would be what Shaw Industries did. Leave behind the PVC with hard nylon fibers like the carpets you know, that are being made by big companies like Interface and went to thermoplastic polyolefin back with a nylon six-phase fiber that can go back to fiber through chemical recycling. So now it's the largest carpet company in the world wow. and it's designed to come back. So you're storing all your raw materials that are safe, unlike PVC carpet, which might give you dioxins and furans in a fire, which are safe and you get them back. So you're storing your, your raw materials on your customers' floors. This is the circular economy. Because when they want a new carpet, if you make it with cradle to cradle, it's used renewably power, clean water, and these same materials that you already had out there. So you send a truck full of new product, it picks up the old product, brings it back to the factory, which is this raw material, and you make new carpet. This is how we'll have carpet for centuries without destroying the world, because we use it over and over again, and it's not a toxic material to begin with. But you also need the, you need the um, systems in place to, to do it, to collect it, take it back. And so, right. so recovery becomes a big issue. You have to get the thing back and then clean it, restore material to it, and then reuse it if it's that kind of thing. That's true. You can also have refill if you've got an existing package and you go in and refill it with something. That's been a historically useful thing for centuries. And then we have recovery of recyclates, which may be complex, like plastics. Then we have to clean them up and do something with them to get that to, that's processing. And then we have compostables. Mm -hmm. And at this point, compostables are a bit tricky because we want compostables, not just biodegradables. The problem with biodegradable plastic often is that we just biodegrade the amorphous part between the crystals of the polymers. And so you end up with these tiny bits of plastic. So it doesn't go back to soil because it's still tiny bits of plastic. So you say you biodegraded it, but you biodegraded all stuff in between the little microplastics that don't biodegrade. And then you've got them in your soil. They're inert, but they're there. And then the stuff we're looking for is the plastics, now we have this, that is compostable, like a leaf, which is a kind of a form of plastic, if you think about it. But if we have plastics now, we have, well, carbohydrate. Yeah. We have specifically got now plastics that are designed to go back to carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, so they can go back to soil. It's a beautiful wow. thing. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. what you're talking about, the, the sort of the bad carbon that only degrades physically, is not to what a, we're looking it for. It degrades physically to a point where it's a small piece, but, but it it's still plastic. It's still plastic. It's still plastic. Yeah. So what we're looking to do is actually... Take it back to hydrogen, carbon, oxygen. Right, so it's elemental parts, so a chemical. Or you could almost say carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, carbohydrate. What are some of the, let's say, the top three important messages that you would have to share, and then maybe the top one or two things that our, our audience can do themselves to ensure that we actually do create a circular economy? I think an important thing for a person to do is just start by imagining three things. What do you need? What do you want? What do you love? And so get what you need. This is important. And so we need food, we need clothing, we need these things. Fine. Once you get past that, then you move into what do you want. And if the want is profligate, you know, if you want to have a new blouse every three days, and you can in modern culture depending on your income level, because sometimes it's cheaper to buy a new blouse than to clean the one you have.
Isn't that amazing? So all of a sudden you end up with the average person, I think, in the United States buys 70 pieces of new clothing a year. So like, do you really need 70? Do you need new apparel every week? Well, if you yeah. do, then just like you said, create it as a nutrient. service. Yeah, or, or a service. It's either a nutrient, so it can go right. back into things safely, or it can be recycled, or it can be reutilized, right. returned and reutilized, or it can be donated to somebody. Although we're seeing now the African nations don't want our clothing anymore because they're overloaded with it. They've become a dumping ground. Chinese are the same way. They don't want our recyclates anymore because they don't want to be a dumping ground. So we've, we're so far past the point when you can actually give it to somebody as a gift because they don't want it. They have too much of it already. That's the want part. The well, want. you can't even consume it. So that's you're, you have more than you can use is what it comes down to. And then the third would be you know, the things you love. So there are things in apparel or in mechanical devices and things that you love. I, I happened to have had a car when I was in college that I got from Benny Goodman, the King of Swing. I was a chauffeur. Wow. And I ended up with this car. It was the most beautiful Mercedes convertible. And he, it was too heavy for him to drive. And so he arranged for me to have it. And I had it all through college. It was the most beautiful car. And so actually, you can love a car. You can actually say, I love this car. And you might want to take care of it and drive it on weekends. And if I could have afforded it, I would have done that. It's a nice thing. So there are certain things you love. And, and that's okay. And so you'll see certain clothing companies, for example, that are designing timeless things that you would love and hand over to your children even. So we move from what I see in fast fashion right now, which is this kind of timeful mindlessness. You know, we're in a hurry and we don't want to think about it. We just go. Where on the other hand, these kinds of things would be timelessly mindful. So somewhere between, you know, timefully mindless don't even think about it and it just scramble through the world and this other kind of timeless mindfulness like deeply consider how useful this can be across generations is modern life figure out or if you need gonna, that for your ego or you yes. want it because you're trying to keep up with somebody else or would you rather wait and really just buy a few things you really love and want to use over and over well i thought what you're going to say with love is what do you love if you love the oceans if you love the natural That's world it's all part of the same question exactly yeah. so then prioritize that yeah. maybe yeah. have a few heirlooms and yeah. realize that your behavior is essentially affecting yeah. the places yeah. that you love right. so fabulous so you'd say reflect on that which you need reflect on that which you want and reflect on that which you love yeah and in the end what I do when I'm designing, whether it's a building or a package or products like the jeans we just did, is ask this question. How do we love all the children of all species for all time? And then design it. Last question. How does this take us back to, you know, sort of the way that our great-grandparents or our grandparents lived, where you were talking about celebrating the local customer? How is it this behavioral change that we're talking about when we're looking at reducing, reusing, recycling? How is it actually, I want to say naturally intelligent to our species, something that we know and it's a behavior that's within our, our culture actually to reuse. Well, it's not that many generations since this was the norm. Yes. You know, people farming four generations ago in China was this way, in the United States was this way. My grandparents, you know, went through the Second World War. They saved all metal, they composted, they grew their own vegetables, they grew their own food. There was a war going on. And it was just natural to them that you would, would lean into it. You also were taking care of your neighbors because they'd share things. You know, one person would be growing the tomatoes, the next person would be growing the cucumbers, and who knows. 
and and then same thing with the medals and everything. You're in a war effort, right? So this was about helping the country survive this incredible situation by making sure that every ounce of useful material was in, directed to the appropriate need, which in that case happened to be vehicles, jeeps, and tanks, and airplanes. And it's a strange thing, but people were very willing and capable of engaging with bigger, higher order questions. I think the problem is today our questions seem to be so much lower order questions, like have I got the right color? I'm going to look on Instagram. These aren't high-order questions. And I think now they're becoming aware that this is a high-order question. The climate is a high-order question. The plastics in the ocean is a high-order question. And they affect human health, they affect our lives, they affect our futures. It's not just, oh, the weather is going to look different a little bit. If we go back 100 years and see Emerson, you know, he was asked and wrote an essay on nature for Harvard. And the question he was asked is, if human beings are natural, are all things made by humans natural? Well, his response was, nature is all those things that are basically immutable, what he called the unchangeable essences, too big for humans to affect. And his examples were the oceans, the mountains, the leaves, and the air. And here we are 150 years later. We can affect all of those. We can take down the mountains of West Virginia. We can affect all the oceans. We can affect the air dramatically. Yes. And we can take down the forests. Does nature even exist anymore? You can't talk about something that we can't affect. We can affect all of it. The tricky part today is, as a biologist once told me, the surest way to heal an ecosystem suffering from ill health is to connect it to more of itself. If you destroy a wetland, if you still have half a wetland, it can recover. Yes. If you have no more wetland, it can't recover. It can't recover. Oh. We have to be careful. We're at the point. And that's why the young people are calling it extinction. That's why we really do care about ecosystem continuity. You know? And when you interrupt an ecosystem with nanomaterials that are foreign, oh my goodness, how's it going to recover when it, we have no idea what these things are going to do? And they're going to affect things all the way down at that level. Amazing. So we really have to believe in the recovery, and we really have to, now that we've essentially set our target for the new deal with nature, to retain and protect 50% of our natural and be, world. And be truly honest and dignified about our attempts to make regenerative materials, right. things that can help the natural systems recover. I think the big difference is the goals of 20 years ago were efficiency, more, be more efficient with what we do. But we've realized that that's not going to be good enough. Because if you're doing what we were doing efficiently, it might be worse. If we're doing the wrong thing perfectly, you become perfectly wrong. The question really is, what is the right thing to do? And so instead of saying, I want to be less bad, and my goal is to make the world less unsafe, less unjust, less polluted, right. less, 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 less. It's like you don't say to a child leaving for the day, I hope you'll be less bad today. And if your goal is nothing, then you tell the children, my goal is nothing, and you're making my life difficult because I have to feed and clothe you. That's a miserable message. If you say, I'm just going to reduce my carbon by 20% by 2020, well, you're telling me what you're not going to do. Well, that's like saying to the taxi driver, quick, I'm not going to the airport. How useful are all these statements about being less bad? So I think that our real statements have to be about being more good. So the statement becomes, how could our goal be a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, water, soil, and power, 
economically, equitably, ecologically, and elegantly enjoy it. Period. Do more good. Yeah, just do that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.